So let's read our text now. This is the gospel of Jesus this morning, given to Micah, thus given to the church of all ages, thus given to even us this morning. Woe is me. For I have become as when the summer fruit has been gathered, as when the grapes have been gleaned, there is no cluster to eat, no first ripe fig that my soul desires. Hold on just a moment. Would you stand for the reading of God's word? I apologize. The godly has perished from the earth, and there is no one upright among mankind. They all wait They all lie in wait for blood, and each hunts the other with a net. Their hands are on what is evil to do it well. The prince and the judge ask for a bribe, and the great man utters the evil desire of his soul. Thus, they weave it together. The best of them is like a briar, the most upright of them a thorn hedge. The day of your watchman, of your punishment, has come, now their confusion is at hand. Put no trust in a neighbor, have no confidence in a friend. Guard the doors of your mouth from her who lies in your arms. For the son treats the father with contempt, the daughter rises up against her mother, the daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. A man's enemies are the men of his own house. But, as for me, I will look to the Lord. I will wait for the God of my salvation. My God will hear me. Rejoice not over me, O my enemy. When I fall, I shall rise. When I sit in darkness, the Lord will be a light to me. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. Let's pray. Father, use your word this morning on our hungry hearts to feed us with yourself. We are desperate to receive from you more than we know. So we look to you with expectancy that your spirit would attend to our ears and our hearts even now in Jesus' name. Amen. The prophet Micah preached about 700 years before Christ, and why he was a prophet is given us to, to us in chapter 3. The Lord is going to send them into Babylon in judgment, and then he's going to bring them back to their land in mercy. Micah, the prophet who is a contemporary of Isaiah, is preaching against the rich, unjust, broken family and idolatrous. This is written as a lawsuit by God against his people. And he starts with woe. What woe entails is the sound a hungry stomach makes. It's the growling of an empty spiritual stomach. A low, guttural groaning. 
Micah is preaching judgment to the people of God that they'll never find true fulfillment until mercifully God brings them back to the land. Those who are being judged will not find satisfaction. Only the pain of hunger, our first point. Micah is saying that he, in that woe, has become like a harvest, like a harvest, empty. The food has been picked and shipped. His, his soul desired, desires or really craves a fig. This reveals to me that he's speaking of more than just physical hunger. If his soul is hungry, that this talk of food represents something. Now, that should not be news to us. Look at our table. That morsel and sip are in some ways symbolic of a larger meal that's coming, the marriage feast of the Lamb. We get a nibble now to wait for the big meal later. We are, in essence, remembering a future meal until it comes. Years ago, I was trained in culinary school, and I worked as a cook and a baker in the Navy, and then later became the head pastry chef at the Anatole Hotel in Dallas. So I know my way around the kitchen, you might say. When my three sons were small, I'd cook for them, and they'd invariably want something to eat before dinner was ready, complaining about how starving they were. So I'd give them a taste to tide them over. That's kind of what our communion is. In a way, a taste of things to come. But it's also something tangible or someone, right? Jesus, more of Jesus. The Lord's table is not just a memorial, but it's a means of grace. Jesus shows up there. We get more of him, a foretaste of glory. When we eat and drink, we get him and know that someday we'll get all of him. So our passage, the food that's gone, is a picture of things taken away. Food in scripture, scripture has always represented relationships. From the food at the Garden of Eden to the bread and wine during the supper, to the table spread at the marriage supper of the Lamb. Eating conjures up images of fellowship, satisfaction in eating and drinking, joy of friends and family around the table. It adds depth to the meaning of hungering and thirsting after righteousness' sake, seen in the Beatitudes. So starting broadly, Micah delineates for us the unsatiated hunger, the woe, the lament he is experiencing as the people of God, as a picture of that people. First, in verse 2, we are told that the godly has perished from the earth. He is starved for fellowship. It is not available. So he experiences groaning. The church is gone. Actually, it's worse than that, isn't it? Read that they're deadly, waiting for blood. The edifying have become the enemy. 
community defined by conflict. Sound familiar? And if you think this can't happen to us, look at Revelation 3 to the Laodicean church. That warning to a rich, comfortable congregation living in denial. To them, John says, So because you are lukewarm and neither hot nor cold, I will spit you out of my mouth. For you say, I am rich, I have prospered, and I need nothing. Not realizing you are wretched, pitiable, poor, blind, and naked. Lose your passion for love and justice, lose your hunger, and there will be judgment. Micah then gets into their government. He yearns for a protection that is not there. In fact, they too are dangerous out to get him. Woe is me. Personal gain has replaced national responsibility. Well, surely that could never. It's consistently on the nightly news. Now we get the big picture of God disciplining when that humility and justice disappear from the national stage. They look to their political system to rescue them and God has removed its benefit. A cautionary tale to be sure. Narrowing it down further, neighbors, friends, and lovers each have their turn. Don't put your trust in a neighbor. Have no confidence in a friend. Guard the doors of your mouth from her who lies in your arms. Again, constricting neighbors and friends become part of God's wrath. Where you would ordinarily go for comfort, you get clashes. And as for spouses, he says you need to be on guard. The depth of trust that should be found in that intimate relationship is now to be shielded. Whoa. Sad. Sorrow. Now we're left with the offspring. The son treats the father with contempt. The daughter rises up against her mother. The daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. A man's enemies are the men of his own household. The supposedly safest place on earth is the most dangerous. Nowhere to turn. Notice God is allowing no place to escape for his people. The picture God is painting here is that life is closing in on Micah, on God's people. He's slowly exposing them to their deep and deepest needs. Blessings have become curses. Woe upon woe. Deep groaning. Again, unsatisfied and unsatiated hunger. The church, the government, friends, neighbors, spouses, and children, all gone. This is a picture of hell. An eternal state of desperate desire with absolutely no hope of satisfaction. Which leads us to the point of hunger. You see, what we usually attempt to do at this point is deny, diminish, or demand relief from spiritual hunger. We don't like the feeling of that emptiness brought by sin and our sinful condition. But it's a reality that we cannot and should not pretend is not there. 
We were designed for more. So let's take a look at that hunger. There are three layers that we have been designed to experience. Casual, critical, and crucial. Casual hunger is just wanting life to work. We weren't designed for dealing with the thorns and the thistles in our garden. Jesus wore those thorns on his head for us. It was never intended to be so hard to toil. And secondly, we were created with critical hunger, a hunger for community, to be loved and to have impact. We desperately want our family, friends, and fellowship to be there for us. It was God himself who stated It is not good for man to be alone, which is why Jesus died alone, so we wouldn't have to be alone. And then thirdly, most importantly, crucial hunger. We have a longing after God himself. We crave him being there for us in ways that are life-gripping and life-giving. The father turned his back on his beloved son, paying our sin penalty, so now we can turn our face toward the father. But, but, because of sin, not one of those hungers is going to be satisfied. Not in this life, not completely. So what do we do with that existential reality of loss? Where do we turn when what we long for legitimately does not come to fruition? What is the purpose of hunger? Well, let's look at Micah's response and go from there. He gives us three instructions in verse 7. But as for me, I will look to the Lord... I will wait for the God of my salvation. My God will hear me. Look, wait, and relate. First, look to Yahweh. Focus, faith, that he is there for us. That's the essence of that word Lord or Yahweh. The I am. Faith is at the heart of everything. Every good process. Without faith, it is impossible to please him. Faith begins our journey of salvation. So looking to God is faith. This is the beginning of the antidote to running away from hunger. We don't fix it. We fixate on the author of our story and the perfecter of our faith. And then wait. We wait for the God of our salvation. Waiting implies hope. Always. We can wait when we have hope. We can't if we don't. And we wait for the God of our salvation. We don't wait for a plan or a procedure, but a person. 
God is always up to something good for his redeemed. That is our hope. Loss allows for grieving, but we don't grieve as those without hope. So we wait. And then we read, my God will hear me. As a therapist, when I'm sitting with someone in pain, I will sometimes say, I hear you. These are words of empathy. We so hunger to be heard in our pain. And God himself empathizes with our loss, our suffering, our sorrow. Hearing us is how God is loving us. Psalm 40, verse 6 says, In sacrifice and offering you have not delighted, but you have given me an open ear. Burnt offerings and sin offerings you have not required. He didn't delight in sacrifices as they weren't being done out of hearts moved by loving God, but instead they were attempting to prove themselves, to earn their way in. The right thing for the wrong reason. The law was given to an already redeemed people. But it was being used in place of a relationship with him. So God says, I have given you an open ear. He's saying, I want to hear from you and I want you to hear from me. Hearing is key. As faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. So my God will hear me profoundly touches to our deepest hunger. To be heard goes to our core. A father who hears us touches us deeply. During the summer of my 13th year, I had four foster sisters who had lived with my family for eight and a half years, since I was five years old. And they were taken back by their biological mother for various reasons, out of our lives forever, never to be seen again. We were given one week's notice. The day they packed up and moved out, my siblings and I visited a family friend and were to come home when the girls had finally packed up and departed. On that trip home, there were many tears, and my father demanded that they cease. He said it was all done, and we were never allowed to speak of them again. They could never be mentioned in our home again. They weren't ever. We needed our pain heard, our sorrow heard, our grief heard. It was not. And this established a pattern of clamming up and shutting down for me. I learned early on to shove my disappointments, my desires, and my dreams down deep 
So it's no surprise that God ended up looking a lot like Daddy. As I traveled the route of drugs and debauchery and denial, the insatiable hunger was more than I could bear. Even after coming to faith and being told by a well-known evangelical leader, fake it until you make it, only made things worse. About 35 years ago, I was a few minutes from ending my own life when a loving, caring wife talked me into grieving the losses in my story, exposing my hunger to her and to God, risking believing that God would actually hear my broken heart. Blessed are those who mourn. He heard me. I'm actually alive today as a testimony to that notion. Jesus actually gives us a glimpse into his soul telling us to come to me all you who are weary and heavy laden. Come to me as I am gentle and lowly of heart, making him deeply human, humble and accessible. He invites us out of that space with our heavy burdens to find rest in him there. He does not use those burdens to get back at us. No, indeed, he uses those burdens to get us back. He went without being heard on the cross. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? So that we could, so that we would be heard. Exposure to deeper and deeper hunger, and he will hear me. You know, I suspect and submit we don't hear from him, nor him from us, because we have just enough appetite suppression going on, <coughs> because we work more, shop more, drink more, eat more, party more, family more, gossip more, control more, Grumble more, daydream more, exercise more, entertain more, video more, drug more, politicize more, study more, minister more. Clean more, isolate more, meddle more, stew more, parent more, create more, organize more, social media more, read more, game more, TV more, talk more, sleep more. And those are just a few of my favorite things. You see... We don't know hunger for him as we could because we deny, diminish, and demand relief from that hunger. Baking it, like I did for 20 years, thinking that feelings of relational hunger reveals some kind of character flaw. Or if we cannot deny, we diminish. We minimize that painful gnawing through rationalization. Others have it worse. Oh, it's not that bad. And if we can neither deny nor diminish, we demand relief. We find external ways to fill up that empty space that is ultimately reserved for God himself. So, look to Yahweh. 
Wait for God and speak to a God who will hear you. Or perhaps said differently, as Paul will say it well into the future of Micah, faith, hope, and love. Our faith in what God has done gives us hope that God will continue to do so, and that informs our ability to hear and be heard by God and others. Faith gives hope, which buttresses love, which reinforces faith, and so on and so on, creating this beautiful feedback loop of sanctification. But, but, we, in our hunger, won't always get it right. Our woes will cause us to stumble. We will fall, we will fail. Micah anticipates this in verse 8. Rejoice not over me, O my enemy. When I fall, I shall rise. I love this. The enemy who comes to steal, kill, and destroy thinks he gets victory when we fall, when we fail. But in God's design of reconciliation, he still loses. Because that's when God says, I see your evil and I raise it a redemption. He actually uses that failure to both draw us to himself, giving us grace, and to bring others to an encounter with the cross, bringing value to that narrative. Instead of whining like my young sons when they were hungry, God wants us woefully wailing. I'm starving for you. Feed me more of Jesus. I was relationally starving, and I fed at the trough the world had to offer through the gay and trans communities, the drug culture, and the club scene, and then replaced it with religious moralism, and it only left me craving more. I desperately tried to fill up with depravity at one end and conformity at the other, at the expense of my dignity to no avail. Jesus lovingly saw to it that nothing there would satiate or quench that overwhelming yearning. But now, I embrace that shame-soaked, sin-filled story. Because, well, now, this, today, the joy of my being used by God to help build his kingdom. Take that, enemy. When I fall, I shall rise. Resurrection power. From Joel chapter 2, I will restore to you the years that the swarming locusts have eaten, the hopper, the destroyer, and the cutter, the great army which I sent among you. You shall eat in plenty and be satisfied and praise the name of the Lord your God who has dealt wondrously with you. And my people shall never again be put to shame. And now finally... The plan of hunger. Back in verse 8, when I sit in darkness, the Lord will be a light to me. A light to me. Not for me, mind you. There's a major distinction here, so let's not miss it. We still don't get light for us, telling us what goes on in our future, what will be there tomorrow, what will occur next week, and so on. 
but he will be a light to us. He's our illumination. He's all we need, which exposes us in our woe to our hunger for him, to our need for him. That's, this all culminates with the thought starting in verse 18, which we didn't read, but I think they're worth looking at now as we close. Who is a God like you? Pardoning iniquity and passing over transgression for the remnant of his inheritance. He does not retain his anger forever because he delights in steadfast love. He will again have compassion on us. He will tread over our iniquities underfoot. You will cast all our sins into the depths of the sea. You will show faithfulness to Jacob and steadfast love to Abraham as you have sworn to our fathers from days of old. Our woe should move us to worship. This is the plan. This is the grace. He will eventually feed his hungry ones. He will show his steadfast love, his chesed to his people. This is his obsessive, obligatory love. He will use that deep suffering and sorrow finally and forever for our good because for his own, groaning always leads to glory. So because of Jesus delightfully treading our sins underfoot, risk being hungry. Let your spiritual stomachs growl loudly in that you want much more of yourselves, of others, and especially of God. And trust that when he says he's Yahweh, he means it. He's there for you. And then wait, hope for the not yet to be thy kingdom come, even in part in this life, and then speak out to him who hears you. Embrace his love for you in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Let's pray. Father, we are a hungry people, but also impatient, and we don't like looking to you, waiting for you in our hunger, trusting that you work in our emptiness, so we fill up with false gods. We worship blessings rather than the blesser. Help us know that in our loss you listen and give us grace to trust and wait, faith and hope. Because you have loved us with an immeasurable love, let us be hungry even now for more of Jesus as we approach the table. For him who broken and bleeding offered himself up as we feed on him at his meal delighting in that taste of the marriage supper, waiting with expectancy, remembering him until he comes. Grant us the faith. Indeed, give us more faith through this means of grace to eat and drink for Jesus' sake, in whose name we pray. Amen.